Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. John 2, Jesus, here he is in chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it had came from, but the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, he said this, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then they set out the boxed wine, no, sorry, the inferior, sorry about that, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they didn't stay there many days. Verse 13, now the Passover, Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a, all casual, when he had made a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. To that we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, thank you truly. We want to express that with great gratitude, knowing, reminding ourselves of the great gift that your word is to us. Um, It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. But so much more than that, here in this series we're doing, here in the Gospel of John, your word It's a lens through which we see Jesus. And there's so much jockeying for our attention this morning. There's so much even this week and in life and even right now, all the things that 
are calling for our attention. But Lord, we know there's nothing more valuable than getting a fresh glimpse, a clear vision of you. And so despite what we think we've seen and we know this morning, God, would you make us childlike? Would you give us wonder? Would you cause us to humbly receive whatever it is you want to show us today? I ask that you would help us do that. God, help me do that. I pray that I would be so far out of the way that we would just only see Jesus this morning. I pray you would use the words I've prepared. Empower me with your spirit to preach to your people. We ask, God, that you would speak to us in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, uh, 22 verses that we read through there, watching Jesus along the way. Uh, Let's unpack this. So we're going to tie this all together this morning. If you're taking notes uh, with this title, here's the title of my message this morning. The title is simply, The Fullness, The Fullness of Jesus. The Fullness of Jesus. That's what we're looking at here, and that's where we are going. You know, that's really what we're after in this series, Uh, We're after getting a full look at all that Jesus is and not settling for just one side of him. It's uh, John chapter 1 that we read a couple weeks ago where it tells us that in this gospel what we have is we have the fullness of Jesus. Of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. That's John 1, 16. Uh, And that is what we're seeking. You know, there's... um, uh, there's a tendency, I think, I actually am having some problems here. Is it working now? Let me see. Yay, we're back. Okay. It's fully working. The fullness of my technology. Good. All right. Of his fullness. That's where, where John gives us. He's given us a full picture of Jesus. Now, we know on this side of heaven that we will never come to the end of our understanding of Jesus. Someone say amen. And, and that's part of what keeps us hungry for the Lord, isn't it? Always knowing that uh, the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, if anyone thinks he knows anything... He knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. I love that. So yeah, you might be smarter than the person next to you. You might know more than they do. But compared to what you don't know, you know nothing. I love that. And that's what it is with the Lord. The danger we get into is when we settle for what we think we know about God. And we just kind of say, yeah, I know that. That's fine. I've been taught that. That's who he is. Or, or we just kind of settle maybe for one side of him without getting the full picture of him. And that's what we're after in this series. And that's what we have here in John 2. Not the full picture of Jesus in his entirety, but a couple steps closer to us fully knowing who the Lord is. And again, remember, we're trying to see who Jesus is fully. Why? Because when we see Jesus fully, we see who? We see God fully. Uh, there's this popular meme that's, that went around in the past week or two uh, that sort of captures, I think, a, uh, in sort of just, I think, the spirit of this. And it's this meme where uh, you display your personality as seen through the lens of different social media platforms. Have you guys seen this? Just me? All right. And basically what it is, is it kind of pokes fun at how the different sides of you come out in uh, different areas. And so I did a sanctified version of it because uh, the meme needs Jesus and needs to be saved. But um, so this is kind of, let me give you an example of this. So that would be like my, this is, 
I, just so you know, I feel very uncomfortable looking at pictures of me on a screen in front of you, but I'll just move past that. Okay, so this is like the LinkedIn version of me. I guess I'm, I'm very official with my giant Jenga set. I don't know why that's professional, but all right, there's me with my family. That's like the Facebook version of me. And then there's me like on my Instagram, the Instagram version or Instagram side of me, me with my brother and my son at the skate park. So the idea is that these different platforms, they capture a different side of your life and your personality. So this would be like my professional life, I guess. This would be my my family life, and this would be, I don't know, my social and recreational life. And so uh, the idea here is not that I'm a different person in these different environments. The idea is that more of my personality comes out when you see my whole life. So here's here's what I would say. The people who really know you know you in every environment. They don't just know the Instagram you. Usually that's like only... So true, too, right? Like the Instagram you is like only 20% who you really are just on Instagram, right? But then there's the, the, all these different versions. And that's kind of what we have here in John 2 with Jesus. We have a couple different scenarios and environments. Let me remove my face from the screen so we all feel better. And There you go. It works. Thanks, God. All right. Um, but we have in John 2 a couple different environments and platforms that are displaying Jesus to us in a really uh, cool, complimentary way. And so we have these three environments. We have an environment at a wedding, gives us one side of Jesus. Then you have Jesus in the temple, which it's amazing to contrast Jesus at the wedding and Jesus at the temple. It's not a different Jesus. It's just another side of who he is. And then you have Jesus in conflict and conversation with the religious people of his day that are wondering what kind of authority he has to do the things that he's doing. So let's look at what we just saw. Let's get a, a glimpse here of who Jesus is. And I want to give us uh, three, uh, three more sides of the person of Jesus based on these texts, okay? Uh, as we step closer to the fullness of him. The first, uh, you, you could say, side or lens that we see Jesus in in the first story here, as we see Jesus, this is the first point, in uh, the, the first 11 verses, we see Jesus as displayed as a miraculous provider. A miraculous provider. That's the first lens, as we're trying to get to know what God is like, here's Jesus. What's God like? Well, look at Jesus, and look at him at a wedding, being a miraculous provider. That's what God's like too, isn't it? God is a miraculous provider. Certainly, here's Jesus displaying that. Uh, How does Jesus miraculously provide? Well, he provides wine for the life source of a party to keep going to a young couple and their guests. And that's what it tells us. Let's look at that first. Let's look at this story here and see Jesus as the provider. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, weddings in that culture They lasted a whole week long. I was just at a wedding this past Friday. Can I just point out, actually, they're both here in church today. I hate to do this to you, but Angie and Rich, would you raise your hands? That's Angie and Rich. And then you have Dana and Chris right next to them. So Dana and Chris's son, Brock, married Angie and Rich's daughter, Kira, this past Friday. That's an awesome thing. It was an awesome time. I didn't know you guys would be here. It's not, a, you know, just had to, I, you were sitting right there. I couldn't ignore it, you know, um, an awesome thing. And, and uh, it seems like, just want to say that that's one of our missions as a church is to marry couples. And so just want to throw that out there. It's like, someone said to me, they're like, how many weddings have you done this year? And I'm like, I have no, they asked me, how many have you done? And I'm like, you mean this year? Like, because it's, it's been pretty cool to see that. I just love that. We're like the ark, like they come in twos. Okay, get it? I'm Noah. Never mind. All right. Anyway, 
But in that culture, man, it was, a, it was an awesome wedding, such, an, such a special celebration. And that's kind of what we have going on here. There's a wedding going on in this city at Cana, and Mary's there. This is a week-long celebration, and it tells us that Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding. Now, there could be some detail around that. Maybe it was like Jesus is coming. It's like, oh, if you, it's like, you know when you like invite that person, you know you got to invite those other people. So maybe it was like, okay, his mom's going to be here. we got to invite Jesus Oh, but he's got like the disciple thing going right now. We got to invite the disciples too. Okay, so Jesus' disciples come to the wedding. They come as a squad rolling up. And there they are at the wedding. And here's what it tells us, that the wine runs out. Now, uh, the question of why is up to speculation. Uh, some could say maybe the, the, uh, the couple itself was not as well off and they just couldn't supply all the wine needed for their guests. Some have said maybe verse 3 is connected to verse 2. In verse 2, Jesus shows up with his disciples. In verse 3, the wine runs out. I don't know. It could have been a little bit of both. But this is the scenario. This is the first place that we see Jesus as a miraculous provider. He's at this beautiful wedding celebration with his homies. The wine runs out. Now, Lest we trivialize this and and couch this as just some VBS story, we need to truly understand the full weight of what's going on here. In that culture, for the wine to run out was a major situation. This was a big deal. This is not a small matter. Uh, Certainly, you could start from the simple things. For the wine to run out at the wedding literally meant the fun stops, right? It's like the music gets cut off. And which, by the way, anybody as a host, anybody have this fear? This is like the greatest fear, I think, of my wife and I of like doing events and stuff. My biggest fear is like we don't have enough when people show up. Like for those of you that, that love to play the host, I think you could probably resonate with the anxiety that comes with like, okay, how many are coming? I didn't know, you know. Um, but in this case, this, this, this is, you know, it's a sad story for the couple. But it, they're not Americans. This is not like, well, just go run to Publix around the street, or ABC Liquor, you know, just go get some more wine. Like, this is not a small matter. This is a significant deal. In that culture, this had to do with their own reputation. I mean, in that culture, uh, this would have stuck with them. This, they would have become known as the couple whose, whose wedding ran out of wine. And, and not like a small deal. I mean, this would have stained their reputation. So their very shame is at stake. Like, this, is, you don't, this doesn't happen. And not only that, but there could have been financial consequences to this. In that culture as well, to not provide sufficiently for your guests at your wedding could, could lead them to sue you and actually win easily. There's all sorts of ramifications of this culturally that show us that this wasn't just like a big deal. Like, oh no, the wine ran out, Jesus and his disciples, you guys showed up. I mean, there's a lot at stake here with the supply of wine running out at this wedding. The life of the party, the shame of the couple, the financial consequence... And here's where we see Jesus filling that space as an amazing provider for this couple. Um, and, and as he provides, let's look through a couple people here. I think we learn about Jesus through the lens of a few people in the story. Uh, I think the first person we learn about Jesus as a provider for is his mother, is the mother Mary. No one really knows their son like, uh, or a, a son like their mom. And here's the mother of Jesus. And here's what, what she says. After the wine runs out, it simply says that the mother of Jesus went to him, said to him, they have no 
wine. And if you're just taking notes, maybe just jot this down. Something simple about Mary and what she knew about Jesus. Mary knew who to go to when the supply ran out. That's just simple. This is something insightful. Mary knew with the supply running out, I'm going to go to Jesus. Jesus. He is the source of all Supply. She knew this about her son. Uh, at this point, this wasn't presumptuous for Mary to, to sort of want to call on her son Jesus to begin to show off who he is. I mean, uh, for all these years, he's lived in obscurity. She's known who he was. I mean, imagine that. She remembers at 12 years old leaving him. He's now a man in that culture, but leaving him at the temple and, and going, oh, no, I, I lost the son of God and goes and finds him. And he told her, Mary, don't listen. I must be about my father's business. I am your son, but I am ultimately the son of God. And I'm here to do my father's work, not my mother's work. That, that's moms. That would be hard to hear, wouldn't it? From your son, like, boy, you know, like, I carried you, you know? Like, I imagine, like, come on, I imagine if your child wasn't the son of God, that'd be, even, even being, it's difficult to hear. But Mary has watched now, after those years of him being in obscurity, he's watched now, man, Jesus has been publicly at this point, he's been declared as the Lamb of God. Like, he's getting some notoriety, he's getting some followers. The famous John the Baptist has said, this is the one, this is the Messiah. News is spreading, and it's almost like, like every mother to their son sees the opportunity for the son and steps in and goes, Jesus, Jesus. But there's a principle here. There's a principle about knowing who to go to when your supply runs out. You ever had your own supply run out, whatever it may be? You ever been left on empty? Uh, now, I, this is true for me in so many metaphorical ways with my phone battery. I'm like the last-minute charger guy, my, my gas tank. <laughs> But there's been so many times in my life where, in a spiritual sense, an emotional sense, you ever just not had it in the tank? You ever just lacked what you needed to be who God's called you to be, to do what God's called you to do? And the answer to that is, of course. The question isn't, will your supply run out? The question is, where do you go when it does? Where do you go? We all have some kind of limited supply. But what we learn from Mary is Mary knew that Jesus was the provider. She knew where to go to. Paul tells this to the church in Philippians. He says that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. What a great promise. Isn't that awesome to really know this? Can I tell you the true test of whether or not we believe this is what we do when our supply is lacking. And whatever that may be, I would just, I'm praying through this. I just felt like maybe this just needed to be a lot more open-ended. Maybe for some of you, it's financial. Maybe for others, it's spiritual. Maybe there's something missing in your marriage, something missing in your home. Maybe right now there's something missing in your life, and you've been trying to fill it and fill it and fix it, only to be left even more empty. Sometimes that happens. It's like there's a hole in the bottom. <laughs> so no matter what you do to fill it, it just pours out as fast as you try to fill whatever that is. And here's what we have in the person of Jesus. We have a promise that we have someone in Jesus who will always fill what's lacking. He's enough and he's more than enough to satisfy, to supply whatever it is we're lacking. And, and when, again, when we believe this, we'll go to him like Mary did, right? I don't know about you, but I, I don't always find myself going to Jesus first, like Mary. I often find myself going to my own reasoning, like how did I get in this situation? 
or I go to Brittany and I. We're very close, my wife, so I'll go to my wife. Even this morning something happened. I called her, and, and I even heard the, felt the Lord say, why didn't you talk to me? Now, that's not a diss, obviously, on my wife because he speaks through her, and he did this morning. But do you understand what I mean by that? That initial response to go to the Lord, going to the Lord. That's what Mary shows us. Now, here's Jesus' response to Mary as she knows Jesus is the provider. Notice Jesus' response. He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, as if, there, as if one offense wasn't enough. Now Jesus is saying, Mary, and now he calls her woman. In that culture, it's not a derogatory term. It's a term of endearment. It's loving. You shouldn't say it in today's culture. Don't say to your wife later, woman, what would you like for lunch? Don't do that. Don't do that. Say, woman, may I serve you? May I? That, that would be better, okay? Or something. Or you get the idea, okay? So in that culture, though, it's, very, it's endearing, woman. You could think maybe like woman of God. That's the idea. But he says to her, what does this concern have to do with me? He's kind of making a point here, right? We know this, that Jesus goes on to do the miracle, right? So, so he's not saying, this is not, my, this is not my time. But he is saying to Mary... You know that my timetable is not you anymore as my mom. I serve the father. I'm the son of my father. And and this was the sacrifice of being the the incredible mother Mary of the son of God. Now, because of, I think today in the church, we have sort of um, overreacted to the unhealthy idolization of Mary. Have you noticed that? Like Mary in a lot of different uh, sex and groups is held up way higher than the scriptures do to where she is in, in some, some literature she's even considered like a co-redemptrist to Christ. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen it, there's like crucifixes that have Jesus on one side and Mary on the other, which like, don't, nope, don't do that, don't do that. Um, Jesus, there is one mediator between God and man and it's Jesus. So we go to God through Jesus. You don't need a pope, you don't need a pastor, you don't need a saint, you can go to God through Jesus. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news to know that I don't have some special direct line to God because I'm a pastor that you don't have? All that we have is what we've been given in Jesus. Um, at the same token, I think we tend to overreact to Mary and we put her lower than the scripture does lift her. I mean, she had an incredible calling in life. Being a mom in and of itself is something we put down lower than it really is. Uh, it, it's the responsibility that um, shapes the future of our society. It shapes the future of this world. We should have Mother's Day every day. Amen? All right. Uh, but, but Mary, we see that here in the text. She had it hard. What a sacrifice she had to make hearing this from Jesus. So, so the thing we learn from her is we learn to go to Jesus when our supply runs out, but Jesus' response shows us something next. Um, we, we learn now from these other guys, these servants. Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. He's, he's not saying I'm not going to do the miracle. He's making a point. I, I go by God's timetable. And then his mother said to the servants, I love that. She's just like, okay, Jesus. Then she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Wouldn't our lives be so much better? <laughs> If we just did whatever Jesus told us to do. This is why I need to follow Jesus because it's more than things to do. It's a God who's done great things for me. And without that, I would be off of this train already. Uh, but here's this great advice. And, and this is what Mary says to these servants. Do whatever he tells you. And they do. They do. Jesus tells them. Um, 
in verse 7 to fill up these water pots. There were six water pots of stone. This is what Jesus does. They were containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Some translations say two or three firkins, which is just fun to say. And I'm going to move on from that because I already said it and it was fun to say. Um, But this is about 130 to 150 gallons of water, some firkins going on here. And Jesus says, fill up those water pots with that stone. And here's what it simply says, or fill up the water pots of stone with water. It says, and they filled them up to the brim. So they did what Jesus asked them to do. It says, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had not known where it came from, the servants knew. Now, this is something interesting. Uh, I just want to point this out. So we know a miracle is taking place right now. We don't know when, in what we're reading so far, we don't know when the water became wine. Did it happen when they filled it up? Did it happen when they took it? Did it happen when he tasted it? Did it? We don't know. We have no, We know nothing except what it's telling us here. But what we do know is, notice this, this is not this big, like, public spectacle. Jesus doesn't, like, go, you know, he's still being somewhat um, discreet regarding his identity. He doesn't go, bring out the water and watch this wine trick I'm going to do. Party trick, everybody come here. You know, David Blaine style, like, everyone get around here. Like, that's not what he does. It's so secretive that even, it's only the, the, the servants, and it's almost like in Mary, really know what's going on here. And so the servants, they bring it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom after drinking it. The water, which was water, now it's wine. And he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine when the guests have drunk well, have well drunk, then the inferior. It's kind of like they've had, we brought out the 2013 Beaujolais. Everyone enjoyed it. Now that everyone's enjoyed it, they're a little pickled and we could bring out the boxed wine. That's kind of what's going on here. Usually that's what happens at the wedding feast. But you've kept the good wine until now. It seems like God is in the business of saving the best for last. And that's what happens here. And here is this, simply speaking, here is this miracle. Mary goes to Jesus. Jesus commands the servants to fill up the water pots. And again, we learn from these servants something in this. We learn from Mary to go to Jesus. But I think what we learn from the servants in regards to Jesus being a miraculous provider is we learn, that, we learn this simply, that there is no substitute for obedience. Simple point. There is no substitute for obedience. Jesus could have done this miracle all by himself. Isn't it interesting that he used the obedience of the servants to do it? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. I'm not saying, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that Jesus cannot do miracles without our obedience. Uh, our salvation is an example of that, right? He saved us despite our obedience and in light of our disobedience. Nor am I saying that the work of God's grace in our lives is somehow based on our performance. Like the reason why you're not blessed is you're not good enough, you're not doing enough. No, I'm not saying that. There are certainly exceptions to every rule. There are times where you don't study at all, and a miracle happens, and you get an A. But most of the time, the way that God seeks to do the miraculous is through very naturally obedient processes. That people look on and go, wow, that's a miracle. And you just go, I was just being obedient. You ever had that? I was just doing what God told me to do. And in the end, he gets the glory for it, not us, right? And that's what we see here. I think Oswald Chambers says it so well. Um, I, uh, Lee sent this to me recently. It was from an Oswald Chambers devotional. 
And Oswald Chambers is like, he's an old dead guy, but he's like still like my living pastor. Um, and this is what he says. He says, we are in danger of forgetting that we cannot do what God does, like turn water to wine. Like we can't do that, right? Uh, we can't. And that God will not do, this is also important, but we're also in danger of forgetting that God will not do what we can do. We cannot save ourselves nor sanctify ourselves. God does that, but God will not give us good habits. He will not give us character. He will not make us walk aright. We have to do that all ourselves. We have to, here's what he takes from Paul in Philippians, we have to work out the salvation that God has worked in. Does that make sense? This is a danger, isn't it? Uh, Of assuming first, one danger is that we could do what God does. No, 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 no. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot sanctify ourselves. We can do, Jesus says, nothing apart from him. But there's another danger that says that God's supposed to do what I'm supposed to do. No, no, God will not do what he's called us to do. He will do what we can't do. But he's put before us opportunities to co-labor with him in our obedience, to see his works of miracles. So let me kind of zoom this into to, to ground level. Let me give you some examples. Maybe right now you're praying for some miracles in your life. You've gone to Jesus. He's the supplier of all your needs. And to start, you're saying, number one, you're going, okay, well, I... I I'm really hoping for a reconciled relationship with this person. It's a broken relationship, and that's what you need God to supply. Here's a a start. Ready? Have you forgiven them? God, fix this relationship. And this is kind of like lazy miracles, right? God, just do it all for me. Fix it. Save that person. I know I'm a horrible heathen around them, and I never try to share with you with them, but you did it to Paul. You'll do it for them, Right? Or fix that relationship. Just be miraculous in my life. And God's like, why don't you trust me? If you trust me for that, why don't you trust me enough by taking some small steps of faith? Why don't you reach out to them over the phone? God, provide resources, financial blessing resources. The Lord's like, why don't you create a budget? Begin to budget. Begin to think about, Lord, I need a job. You're on call of duty. I need a job, Lord. I really need a good, ah, I need a good job, Lord, okay? Do you get the idea, right? Like, we can't be lazy with what we're asking from the Lord. Listen, we can't do what God does. Don't put the pressure on you that you don't deserve. We can't save our children. But we can set an example in the house. Let God do what he does, but let's be faithful to do what we do. We see that through the servants, amen? And lastly, we get a glimpse uh, into this side of Jesus from the disciples. The way that this miracle ends, verse 11, is that this is really cool. Check us out. This is the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Uh, John, at the end of his gospel, remember he says, I'm only going to give you a few signs. There's a lot of signs that Jesus did that John says there's not even enough libraries in the world to contain all the books that could be written. That's how much Jesus did. He did a lot more than we could contain. But there's a particular set of signs. There's, a, I think some have calculated some debate between seven and nine specific signs that John focuses on in this gospel. And this is the first one. This is the first public sign of Jesus in his ministry that we know of. Well, we know it is, actually, because it tells us it's the first one. Uh, but this, is, this predates everything else you have in the other gospels, the first sign of Jesus. And here's what happened when he did this sign. He manifested his glory. He displayed, he showed, he revealed to his disciples and those nearby, his mother even. Imagine being the mother of Jesus and seeing this. And he revealed who he was. 
It's what we most need in our lives. Can I tell you, it's what you need in your life is not just that thing to be provided. It's to get a fresh vision of Jesus and whatever you're walking through. This is the end goal of God's provision. A lot of times we pray for God's provision. We receive God's provision, and then we move on to the next need, not recognizing the glory of God displayed meeting the first need. And it's important to be like the disciples here. They see the glory of Jesus and afterwards believed in him. This is why my word for this year is slow down. This is my word for this year. I'm reading a book. Me and Lee have been kind of co-reading this. Brittany read it earlier, a book called The The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I'm on chapter five. Lee's been done with it for like a month. He's like, are you done with it? I'm like, I'm reading slow. I already am a slow reader. And the book is about slowing down. But that's kind of what God has on my heart lately. And I know one of the things that hurt most in my life when I'm moving so fast is my own enjoyment of God. The ability to stop and go, wow. Look what you've done. Wow, your glory, seeing the Lord. Now, imagine being the disciples and seeing the glory of Jesus. Now, this is not a small phrase. This is the first miracle of Jesus. And this glory that's being displayed of his first miracle is a big deal. Okay, it's, it's the first impression. Like, if you're the Messiah and you're on the scene, your first miracle is going to say a lot. It's going to say a lot about you. It's going to set the standard. How you start things matters. This is such a beautifully orchestrated first miracle of Jesus. Can I tell you why? It connects even earlier in the Gospel of John to a verse that we're given that contrasts Jesus and Moses. I want you to follow me here. In John chapter 1, as we're introduced to this Jesus, he's compared to Moses, who was a great prophet, um, But he was the one through which the law was given at a distance. The law was given. But Jesus is the one through which grace and truth has come. You see the contrast there between the law and relationship? The law is given, hey, do these things, here's the rules. Grace is given up close and personal in relationship. It comes in the very person of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know Christianity, but that's what it is. Uh, Being a follower of Jesus is not someone who's been given a bunch of rules. It's someone who's received the nearness of a person. Jesus comes into our lives. That's, that's That's the Christian faith right there. Grace and truth has come near. Now, there's a great contrast here because when the law was given through Moses, the result of that law was this thing called sin. Sin was there since Adam sinned, and it has spread. It's as contagious as the coronavirus is sin, and it's infected and plagued every one of us. Sin is the, is the most deadly disease in the world that we've all inherited by birth. But the way that we've really come to know our sin is by what God tells us to do and what we haven't done. The law, Romans says, the law reveals sin to us. And so that, that's, and that was the whole theme of the, the Pharisees of the time, trying to justify themselves by keeping every point and jot and tittle of the law. And Jesus would constantly go in and, and kind of point out and go, okay, wow, you haven't committed adultery, but have you lusted? Well, you've committed adultery in your heart. See, there's the letter of the law, but the truth of the matter is when we stand before a holy God, not one of us is able to stand up straight. Amen? We, every one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and that's the law. The law was given through Moses. And the result of sin in light of this holy God is judgment. Holy, wrath, righteous judgment. Because God is good and he is fair and he is just. And he will not, we need him to be just, don't we? It's who he is. He doesn't change. And so, now check this out. Moses represents that. 
Moses' first miracle was turning water into blood. A picture of sin and judgment. And here's Jesus. Isn't this awesome? What a contrast, Jesus and Moses. Moses gives the law, the result. My first miracle, Moses, you set the stage. I'm Moses, water to blood. It's like, oh, it's so sad. You know, that's Moses' first miracle. Jesus comes on the scene and his glory is manifested. What a statement that is made. The law was given through Moses, but here comes Jesus. And no longer is it sin that separates you from God, but it's grace that covers your sin. It's truth that sets you free. It's a Savior who, listen, he spills his own blood for our sin. And so Jesus' first miracle, water to wine. We're going to party, is what Jesus has to say. My first miracle, wine. It symbolizes rejoicing. It symbolizes uh, uh, fellowship. It symbolizes unity. So Jesus' glory is displayed in this. And in the end, we see Jesus as a miraculous provider. So here's the first side we get of Jesus here, and um, uh, it's, it's a pretty clear vision. Looking through the lens of Mary, looking through the lens of the servants, and looking through the lens of the disciples, what an amazing Savior Jesus, who will in the end provide himself to miraculously save us by giving himself on the cross. But notice the next scene. So it, it changes. It tells us in verse 12 that he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, And they did not stay there many days. So they weren't there that long is what he's telling us there. And here's what happens. The next thing we have here is Jesus in the temple, verse 13. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So here's Jesus now going from this wedding at Cana. Who knows how much time passes? We see him displayed there as a miraculous provider. And now he with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, they go to Capernaum. They move from Capernaum to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. One of the three significant gatherings there in Jerusalem, estimated at this time, there's anywhere from from 2 to 2.5 million Jewish people there at Jerusalem celebrating Passover. There's a large crowd. This is is huge, okay? A, A large gathering of people. He comes with his disciples. And here in this account in the temple, write this second one down, we see Jesus as a zealous purifier. This is so key for us. Jesus, the miraculous provider, which supplies our need, calls us to obedience, displays in the end his glory. And then Jesus in this next section, we see him as the one that comes into the the temple there at Passover, zealously purifying the sin and the corruption that was in the temple. Jesus as a zealous purifier, you see that he found in the temple, notice this, those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Um, So it's Passover, and you would bring your lamb, and you you would bring your your sacrifice, your dove, and and there was at that time, there was businessmen, Jewish businessmen that were in the house of God, and they would look at your sacrifice, and they'd go, ah, it's, it's close, but it's a little blemished. Little blemish. Get that blemish out of here. You know what you can do is buy one of these fine lambs, all right? Two, two for five, dove. You know, it's like, it's like that kind of a thing going on. It's an infomercial for sacrifices. And, and many scholars would submit that the, one of the most tragic parts of this was the price gouging that would happen. You know what I'm talking about? Like bottled water hurricane coming gouging? Like that's what's going on here. A high demand, low supply, higher prices. And, and so that's what, what's happening here. And Jesus sees them selling the oxen and, 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 and doing business in the temple. And then he sees the money changers. As the Jews would come to pay the temple tax, they would have Roman coin 
And that was considered culturally a faux pas. You don't do that. That's idolatry. You've you got to make sure you get Jewish currency. And so you ever had to, by the way, transfer money? Oh, that stuff can be expensive. If you go to the wrong place, oof, all right? Don't go to the temple of Jerusalem. They are. The prices there are through the roof, okay? And that's what's happening. He goes in the temple, and there they are with these high rates. And, and, and here's what happens. It tells us that Jesus, he finds this, them doing business in the temple. I love this, verse 15. And when he had made a whip of cords, whatever image you have of Jesus being this like comfortable cuddle, like nice, that's okay. Nope. Here's Jesus, like getting ready for his UFC match. Here he is. He's making a whip of cords and he drives them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the changer's money. So now all their money's mixed up. Look at this. Jesus doesn't care. He's kicking tables over. He's pouring the money. So there's money everywhere. And now he doesn't tell us that he's taking the whip and beating humans with it. I don't, you know, maybe. I don't know. But it's likely that he's driving the, the animals out. And he, he doesn't hit the birds. That's nice of him. He said to those who sold doves, I will hit your bird. <laughs> right? Like, get that out of here. Okay? Take these things away. And notice this, do not make, notice the exclamation points here, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. This was a prophetic, messianic expectation. The Messiah, he wasn't going to tolerate this. Notice Jesus. Jesus, he is, ready? He's angry. Did you know that um, anger can be a holy emotion? Did you know that there's times that to truly love something or someone, you have to be angry? Like if someone harms your kid and you love your kid, you're going to be angry. Now, the question is what you do with the anger, right? Like if you're punching holes in drywall, that's not the way to deal with the anger. But God wants to harness that. Here's Jesus, and what a great example. He sees what he sees, the corruption, and he sits down, and he begins to make a whip, which I don't know about you. I found this to be a I don't make whips for a living, but I found, or for fun either, or ever, but <laughs> I found, like, do you, know, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, I found this to be something like this to be one of the most practical ways to deal with my anger. I get angry, something I've been praying for God to help me with. And one of the things that I found God call me to is to just sit down and do something and pray. I imagine that's what Jesus is doing. He's just like, he doesn't react. Do you notice that? He doesn't go, oh my gosh, look at this. Ah, you know? No, he's slow to anger. Ephesians says, be angry, but don't sin. So here's, here's Jesus. He sits down and he's making, and he's just kind of thinking on things. He's praying. He's talking to the Lord. He's submitting his spirit to the Lord. Now, more than just as an example for anger, what we have here is we see something particular about Jesus. Jesus' anger over what was going on was the result of his own passion and zeal for purity, for holiness. Not only at this point has sin corrupted the world, but, but what's more tragic than this the sin of the world is now creeping into the house of God. 
and, and you have these men there who are corrupting the ministry. They are monetizing the ministry. They are leveraging religious worship for financial gain. Keyword there is business. And Jesus had his own business, the Father's business, that he was going to interrupt that business with. And he says, don't ever make my Father's house a house of business. Okay, and can we say this? The church is not a business. The church is the body of Christ. And today still, we have to fight against this same temptation. You see, there are, there are components of church that are business. There's business. For us to be as a local church, soulless church, here we are. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And for us to be faithful stewards of God's resources, we should have some business to what we're doing, Right? There was some business going into, some organization going into this gathering. Uh, you see that as a standard in Acts. Acts chapter 6, you have deacons appointed. Remember that in the church when things are just going crazy and there's people being neglected that, that the church was meant to be generous to, but because there was racism and prejudice, they were being neglected in the church. And so the Holy Spirit calls the leaders of the church to raise up men and it says this, to look over the business of the church. There's business to the church, but the church never should serve the business. The business should always serve the church. Amen? You following me here? There's a subtle temptation. Listen, when the end goal of the mission is to fill seats and make budget. But you can't serve God in money. And this is a heart that we've tried to have from the beginning. I know that as a church, it you know, costs money. To do this like they didn't just say hey come have a free church here at our school we'd love to have you and Andrew just work a full-time job and come do it hopefully you come up with a sermon you know and hopefully you can you know there, there's there's costs there's expenses to the work of God but we've wanted to have this heart from the very beginning that said Lord may we never put our fingerprints on that we still want to have that pray for that God may may, may all the business that happens here be in service to you whatever your vision may be and, and there's times where where there's times today where I feel like maybe Jesus would come into some church environments. Maybe he would come into ours. I don't know. You see it in Revelation. He's writing to the churches, and he's like, he's overturning some tables. He's flipping some. I'm not saying this ever. It's, you know, there's not a time and place for fundraisers, and we're gonna, God's calling us to this. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not thinking about, by the way, I'm not thinking about like one particular church. I'm just talking about American church. Are you guys with me? You know what I'm talking about, right? And there's just some environments that I just imagine Jesus would be very comfortable coming in, maybe with a whip. Like, what are you doing here? Like, what are we doing? Like, God is holy. His church, he's purchased his church with his own blood. We don't get to take control of that. This is a serious matter. Now, lest we sit back and point the finger and celebrate Jesus as the zealous purifier of them, I want to remind you of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your body is the house of God? Do you not know that your body is a temple? Is the temple, that's what's beautiful there, the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Let's stop for a second and think about our own bodies, our own lives. 
which according to scripture is the equivalent of the temple here. The temple was a holy place of worship belonging to God. The very presence of God would, would arrive and manifest. And Paul says, same is true with your life now because you've been bought by the, by the blood of Jesus and you're the temple of God. I started to think about this and I started to say, Lord, where in my life do you need to be a zealous purifier? Like what tables in my life do I need Jesus to flip upside down? You know what I'm saying? Like I put them up, I've set them up in in my my relationship with him. And he's like, get that out of here. Get that out of here. Uh, Jesus, I want you to understand this. Jesus is committed to the purity of his people. Understand that. He is committed to your purity. He is committed to my purity purity. So much so that Titus tells us that Jesus gave himself, Titus 2.14 says that Jesus so committed to our purity that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify, purify for himself his own special people, now zealous for good works. How many of us know we could never purify ourselves? We know that? Man, no magic eraser to fix that. No pressure cleaner to do that. There's nothing. There's no good work. Even the good works don't cover the lawless deeds you need redemption from. We need a purifier. We need a zealous purifier. And this is the good news of the gospel, that you are already clean because of the words that Jesus speaks to you. It's not sanitize, clean up yourself, get yourself together, put your best shirt on, put your best act on, and then come to the Lord and make yourself acceptable. We could never make ourselves acceptable before God. The gospel is that Jesus has done it for us. That on the cross, he became the fill so that we could become pure in his eyes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's what we get to be a part of. We're a new pure. He's committed to our purity, so much so that he takes our sin upon himself to make us pure. And listen, and still he calls us to purity. This is such a simple scripture here that I've been actually marinating on and meditating on. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22, look at this, keep yourself pure. That's like a Selah moment, right? Keep myself pure. I've been made pure by you, Jesus. As As you have done that work in me, make me, it says there, that he makes us zealous for purity. Let me put off all the bitterness. Guys, bitterness will defile you. Keep yourself pure. Sin will defile you. Keep yourself pure. How? At all costs, right? Repentance, confession, community, seeking Jesus. That's a whole other sermon on how to do this. But what a call. Keep yourself pure. And can I say that sometimes the way that Jesus will bring us into purity is he will discipline us like these men in the temple. He'll create a metaphorical whip sometimes, and he'll rebuke us. And, and, and uh, Paul, or whoever, we, whoever is the original writer of Hebrews, actually encourages us with this. He says, if you're in impurity and the Lord is, like Jesus in the temple, driving things out of your life and calling you out, if even right now you're going, yeah, that's impure, and I've been comfortable with that, that sin, that practice, that thought, that bitterness, whatever that may be, that corrupted habit, that business practice, whatever it is. And if the Lord's rebuking, and hopefully he is, because that's a sign, according to Hebrews, that he loves you. It says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, 
Don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. Don't be discouraged. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. He has his own whip. That's a whip of grace and mercy and truth that displays his love towards us. And so what he'll do is he'll sit us down. And in love, he'll tell us hard truths. Not because he's mad at us and he's going to put us away from him. But it's like any good parent disciplines. It's a strike and then it's let me hold you in my arms. I love you. I love you. I love you. That discipline is an expression of his love. That scourging, it's him being committed to your purity in love. Amen? Let's wrap up here. We got one more. And I think this one is going to be quite appropriate. The last thing we see about Jesus, remember this. We saw him first as a miraculous provider co-laboring with the obedience of the servants. We then saw him as a zealous purifier, wanting to get rid of all the impurity that's filling the temple, filling the house of God, filling the ministry, filling our lives. He loves us. He's covered us with his, his own blood and committed to our purity by going to the cross and committed to making us pure. A whole lifetime of sanctification. And then lastly, we see Jesus in a conversation. Write this last one down. We see Jesus as the victorious promiser, the victorious promiser. What promise? Well, it's a promise given after he accomplishes this great act of purging and cleansing in the temple. Uh, it tells us that the Jews, so the Jews answered and said to him, the word Jews, uh, the Jews in, in, the, in the Gospel of John especially, it, it's, it can be used sometimes just to describe the entirety of the Jewish people, but it's often used to describe sort of a religious sect that's often investigating and um, is, is contesting a lot of what Jesus is up to. And so the Jews, the religious of the day, they come to him and they said, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Now notice they didn't say, why did you do that? They knew it was wrong, right? They knew it was wrong to be corrupting the holy house of God and making it a marketplace, monetizing the ministry. They didn't say, hey, why did you do it? They said, in other words, they go, under what authority what authority do you have to come? Aren't you the son of Joseph? What authority do you have to come into the temple and do these things? And here's the, here's the way that they were trying to gauge his authority. What sign do you show us? Uh, the, and that's, again, a theme all throughout John. What sign do you show us that validates and authenticates your authority? And that's, by the way, often what the signs are. Uh, when God sent Moses out, Remember, to set, let my people go, Prince of Egypt, great movie, okay? Christian Bale ruined it, all right? Anyway, whole other story. But when God sent Moses out, God sent Moses out with power to work signs and wonders to authenticate the message that he was proclaiming, to authenticate his ministry. And Jesus was authenticating his claims that he's the son of God. Here with a sign at Cana, he's going to do a couple more signs. And now they're going, okay, what, what kind of authority? Now, here's the question, though. What sort of authority are you going to have? That's what they're trying to pin him on now. What's your authority? Like, where, how high does it go? What sign, how about this? Jesus, what sign, think about this, what sign could you show us to give us a glimpse of how high your authority is? What sort of sign could you do to show us the, the level of clearance you have, the height of authority you have? And here's the sign that Jesus says. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days... I will raise it. Now, they thought he was talking about the actual temple. Jesus is being kind of vague and discreet. And they go, what are you talking about? That, that took 40, this took 46 years to build. 
And it's not even done yet. At this time, it's an ongoing building project. In the end, the temple, uh, this is Herod's temple, it, it requires 18,000 workers to construct. And they go, so you're going to tell me that you're going to destroy the temple, and in three days, you're going to resurrect it. Now, he, he doesn't tell them, well, no, here's the deal, actually. I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be there three days. And I'm gonna... Now, he doesn't tell them that. But he, he proclaims his authority over his power over death here. And then the disciples, it tells us that um, this is often, I don't know, this is kind of how I learn sometimes too, but it says in verse 22, our last verse here, when he had risen from the dead, therefore, I love that, when he had risen, just as he said he would, when he had rose from the dead, it tells us that the disciples remember that he said, they're like, remember, he told us he was going to rise. Oh, I can't believe I missed it, right? We were hiding. What were we doing? And it says the disciples remember that he said this to them, and then they believed the scripture. I, I really, I don't know about you, but I want to be the person that believes it before it happens. You know what I mean? But here's the disciples, they're like a lot of us. They saw it happen now. They're like, oh, he said, he, we believe you, Lord. He's like, yeah, of course you do. I'm, a, I'm alive now, okay? Um, this is an amazing promise. As they're investigating Jesus' authority, Jesus doesn't go to the nation he's from or, or the city he's from. He doesn't talk about what sort of rabbi he studied under. He, he doesn't talk about any sort of credentials that man has given him to give him any authority. He asserts himself as being higher than, other than God, the greatest authority, which is the authority of death. Because no matter how high your authority is, you die. There's no, there's no job position that can keep you from death. There's no elected position that could keep you from death. You know, we came face to face with that as a, as a country this past week when we had one of our nation's central cultural icons and influences tragically pass away with his own daughter and, what was it, seven others? I'm talking, referring to the passing of Kobe Bryant, who is my generation's Michael Jordan and I grew up um, with no real expectation to be a basketball player, but I grew up, you know, idolizing, in a sense, his, his ethic, his work ethic, the way he played ball. And, and um, I found out last Sunday, it was right after church, I found out that Kobe Bryant had passed away, tragically, in this, in this plane crash. And I've just been like, personally, I've been like, just really thinking, has anybody else been like in your head with this? I've been in, like, it's been in my head a lot. And it's like, people die every day, you know? But we're in an interesting time right now where our entire nation has been forced to stare death in the face, right? Like we've all faced something as a, as a nation. For those people who admired Kobe, whether or not they did, what, what our country has come face to, unavoidably face-to-face face with this week is the authority of death that no man can get higher than. The power of death to just snatch life out of our grips. It's a, by the way, it's a horrible power that until you experience the power of death, taking a loved one, you don't really know the power of it. And that's often where we fail is we think we're invincible. We don't realize. And sometimes it's, you know, remember Ecclesiastes? Sometimes it's good to think about death because you think about your mortality and you go, I'm going to die. You're going to die. Like the power of death because of sin in this world is unavoidable. And especially its power to just, 
I mean, this is what we're facing as a nation. Just to, like, remove Kobe Bryant from the earth. Like, I've been thinking, that's weird. My mom, same thing happened to my mom 10 years ago. My mom went to be with Jesus. And it was just like, my mom's not here. The, the power of death. And isn't Jesus awesome? Isn't Jesus awesome? Here's Jesus. And what Jesus says, he goes, here's the sign. Here's my authority. I will overcome death. I will overcome the highest authority between man and God right now. Jesus himself was crucified. He died took on the sins of this world. Jesus himself was buried. And then three days later, check this out, Jesus' own power was greater than the power of death. Process that. Jesus' power was stronger than the power of death. Death, which Hebrews tells us is a weapon in the, in the hand of Satan. That Satan uses death kind of like a, uh, to, to kind of dangle it over our heads. Like no matter what, you're, you're a sinner and you're cut off from God. And he holds a lot of us in bondage to the fear of death. And it's sort of this weapon Satan has, this power to just snatch death or snatch life out of our hands. And here's the resurrection where Jesus snatches death from the hands of Satan. He had a greater power, an overcoming power. There's a simple scripture on this in 2 Timothy where Paul says that Jesus Christ, I love this, he abolished death. And he's brought in life and immortality to light through the gospel. Can we clap our hands for this God? This is who he is. This is what he's done. Death itself isn't the end. For followers of Jesus, Jesus will go on to say, he who believes in me, when he, though he dies, he's going to live. So, so it's because of the power of Jesus that I really believe I will hug my mom again. I really believe it. I don't just wishfully think it. I am more certain that I'll see her again than I am certain that I'm going to die and that she died. The power of Jesus to overcome death. And don't we have an incredible opportunities as Christ followers in this cultural moment? When people are face to face with death, man, we have a chance to say Jesus is stronger. Amen? Jesus is stronger. Call people. Have you ever trusted in Jesus? Ask them. What about you? That's a great question. What about when you die? What do you think? I mean, Jesus so speaks into that conversation. This is the fullness of Jesus. That's what we're after. Now, this isn't the fullness. This is three sides of the fullness of Jesus. But together, that's what we're going for. Man, a more complete picture of Jesus. Because when I see Jesus as the miraculous provider, I know that's who God is in my life right now. When I see Jesus as the zealous purifier, I know that his conviction and, and rebuke in my life, it's his love for me because he's committed to my purity. And I know... That when I'm walking through the pain of death and the enemy of death in my life, I know that I have a victorious promiser who fulfills his promise and is more powerful than any enemy I can face. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulischurch.com. 